loved the book. In fact, this is right now my most gifted book because so many of you write in asking about how do I make a change in my life? How do I make a change in my mindset? How do I make a change in my career? How do I make a change in the way that I think, the way that I act, the way that I deal with people? And invariably my answer is, you know what? It's a long story. Pick the book up. It will change your life. Hello, this is Brandon from Motivational Speech Podcast. I have a great gift for you. I'm sharing some of the highly valuable life-changing free audiobooks. You can find the audiobooks link in the description. These audiobooks can change your life. So don't waste them. Today, uh, well, today when I'm recording this, they uh, have announced their top 10 books of the year, five picks for fiction, five picks for nonfiction. So I wanted to run through them, and that's what we're going to do here today. I will link the 100 Notable list and the best of list down below. I think there are a lot of really good choices on both and some interesting things that I added to my TBR. For example, The Book of Eels is something I added to my TBR from the 100 Notable list. It's Monogamy by Sue Miller and a bunch of other ones. And I, I, I found those available on Script. So I, those are things that I discovered through the Notable list, which again, I will link down below. But today we're going to talk about the actual top 10 list, which is put out by the New York Times book review. I'm very excited about this. I look forward to this list every single year. Don't always agree with some of their choices. Sometimes they have really good years. Uh, this seems by and large to be a good year. I've just, I, there are a fair amount of books I already own, not too many that I've read, and some that seem like a good discovery, particularly on the nonfiction side. But we're going to start with a book that does not really speak to me, which will not be a surprise to you at all. If you uh, follow along, because I have talked about it as part of the National Book Award for 2020, it was a finalist for that. It's a children's Bible by Lydia Millet. Now, I'm just going to read what the New York Times said about the book. It's, it's a tiny little blurb about it, and then we'll talk about the book itself uh, for each of these. So in Millet's latest novel, a bevy of kids and their middle-aged parents convene for the summer at a country house in America's Northeast. While the grown-ups indulge, pills, benders, bed hopping. The kids, disaffected teenagers, and their parentally neglected younger siblings look on with mounting disgust. But what begins as a generational comedy soon takes a darker turn as climate collapse and societal breakdown encroach. The ensuing chaos is underscored by scenes and symbols repurposed from the Bible. A man on a blow-up raft among the reeds, animals rescued from a deluge into the back of a van, a baby born in a manger, with an unfailingly light touch, Millet delivers a wry fable about climate change, imbuing foundational myths with new meaning, and finally, hope. And this one, just it's like the one book on the National Book Awards shortlist that did not immediately appeal to me. I have heard good things about it. I'm sure it's a great book. It's nothing that I am going to rush out and read. I think particularly some of... The references to it seem, I don't know, like they, I'm sure they could be done well, but they seem a little obvious. Uh, I think, I believe the main, main teenager who is leading the group of children is named Eve. And in a book that's very much about the Bible, hey. So I don't know. I'm sure it's a good book. I'm just not going to rush out and pick it up. Maybe at some point, someday, but there are, there are so many other things that I would rather prioritize that it's way down the list for me. And because I'm really unfamiliar with the Bible, kind of at baseline, it feels like there's there's also potential that a lot of it would just kind of go over my head. And that maybe that's something I should work on in the future. I don't know, but it's not going to happen right now. So this is like the one book in the top 10 that 
I, it's probably the one that I would least like, be least likely to read. Then, there's Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Now, I did read this back in July. I actually listened to it most, I did a combination. I was listening to it on audio, but I referred back to the book a lot, but we'll get to that. So what they say is, a mystery story, a crime novel, an urban farce, a sociological portrait of late 1960s Brooklyn. McBride's novel contains multitudes. At its rollicking heart is Deacon Cuffy Lampkin, a.k.a. Sport Coat, veteran resident of the Causeway Housing Projects, widower, churchgoer, odd jobber, home brew tippler, and now, after inexplicably shooting an ear clean off a drug dealer, a wanted man. The elastic plot expands to encompass rival drug crews, an Italian smuggler, buried treasure, church sisters, and Sport Coat's long-dead wife, still nagging from beyond the grave. McBride, the author of National Book Award-winning The Good Lord Bird and the memoir The Color of Water, among other books, conducts his antic symphony with deep feeling, never losing sight of the suffering and inequity within the merriment. So you can see right there, they enjoyed how stuffed and packed this book is. And that is actually the thing that distanced me from it. So it's interesting to have those two very different opinions of the same book. Because to me, there was so much going on in this book that I felt like it hinted at a lot of things and then ended up not really saying anything coherent about most of them. And that was just kind of unfair. There is an overall point to this book, an overall argument that James McBride is making. However, I felt like it just got muddied with so many characters, so many subplots, so many things going on. And the reason I had to keep referring to the book, even though I was listening to the audio, was that occasionally I would, there were so many characters that I would kind of lose track. And have to, it's easier to flip through the books. So I'd be like, who is this person? Okay, that's who they are. And then go back. And I hate the complaint stagey when it applies to a book, but this definitely feels like that. It feels like there are, a scene will start and there's just almost endless dialogue between two or three characters in which they kind of discuss a situation and then it moves on to the next one. And to me, that's the bad version of stagey. And I really like James McBride as a writer. I loved The Good Lord Bird and I want to read The Color of Water, the other book that they reference. I love The Good Lord Bird, but to me, this is a good book that gets muddied, kind of like what I was saying. So I, I, I see why it's on the list, but for me, it, it, it won't be in my top five for the year. Let's put it that way. But it is a good book, and I do hope more people will uh, explore it and discover it. And So it, it is good that it has a spot on a list like this. I, I don't fault the New York Times for putting it here. I see what they like about it. That is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Next, I'm sure you know that I'm thrilled about the inclusion of this one. It's Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, a novel of the plague. I have gone on and on and on about how much I really enjoyed this book, and let's see what they say. A bold feat of imagination and empathy, this novel gives flesh and feeling to a historical mystery. How the death of Shakespeare's 11-year-old son Hamnet in 1596 may have shaped his play Hamlet, written a few years later. O'Farrell, an Irish-born novelist, conjures with sensual vividness the world of the playwright's hometown, the tang of new leather in his cantankerous father's glove shop, the scent of apples in the storage shed where he first kisses Agnes, the farmer's daughter and gifted healer who becomes his wife, and not least, the devastation that befalls her when she cannot save her son from the plague. The novel is a portrait of unspeakable grief wreathed in great beauty. And I think they capture it 
perfectly right there. I think that is everything I loved about this book. I think one of the best things about it is Maggie O'Farrell's really sumptuous writing, gorgeous prose and description. It's You can be spellbound by this book. I actually really want to go back and listen to the audio at some point. Not right away, but at some point. Because I bet this... I, I found myself reading passages aloud to myself when I was alone. And I just loved it I, so much. I have heard that some people did not have the same reaction that I did. Possibly because so much, it was so hyped at a certain point. And when a book gets really hyped, you develop certain expectations of it. Like, because it is known that this book is about Hamnet and the death of Hamnet, some people are a little surprised that it, he doesn't die right away. It, and I, I, that's not a spoiler. You know he dies. But I think... So, I think... But for me, it works because I think part of the suspense is in what, exactly what they say. It's the devastation that befalls her when she cannot save her son from the plague. So that it takes a while to get to that devastation, but I think the fact that you're there as she tries and fails to save her son makes it more impactful. But I can see where some people feel like it's a little misrepresented that this this book deals almost entirely with the aftermath of Hamnet's death. It does not. It's It deals very much with his illness as well. And with the fact that because famously the book does not name William Shakespeare and that can feel like a gimmick to some people I personally love it and I think and I am one of these people who I, I talked a lot about how uh, Maggie O'Farrell really deliberately puts the story on Agnes and does not want William Shakespeare to get the, the plot or the focus or the spotlight and yet he is he is very much in the book. He's just not named. And you know it's him, especially because the name Shakespeare is used in relation to his father, his mother, his sister. So it's very obvious who he is. They just don't name him. And he is a character in the book. He's just not, he's not present for a portion of it. But I think it still does a really good job. Like the very fact that it is so intentional in not giving a name to William Shakespeare does force you to focus on Agnes and not focus too much on him. That's kind of how I feel about it. I see where some people feel a little bit differently, but that's how I think about it. And I really love that idea of like giving Agnes her story back and trying to figure out who the lives of these people who were so entwined with William Shakespeare, but he was, he was also in London, separate from them, writing plays and becoming famous. And their world is so different from the world that he comes to know while he lives there. I love this book. I think it's beautiful. It is one of my favorite books of the year, so I absolutely think it deserved its spot in this list. I'm glad that the New York Times recognized it. This was the winner of the Women's Prize this year. It did not, again, famously, one of the complaints about the Booker this year was that uh, Hamnet did not make the long list, and then The Mirror and the Light did not make the short list. Again, it is one of my favorite books of the year. I'm very glad it was recognized. And I think it's interesting because in the illustration, they always do an illustration for the top 10 books of the year. And the illustration uses the UK cover of the book, not the US cover. And I think I, I just found that a little bit interesting. So fun little tidbit for you. The next one is Homeland Elegies, a novel by Ayad Akhtar. Now, this is actually something that was on the 100 notable books list and jumped out at me from that. I kind of heard things about this book throughout the course of the year, but never really stopped and thought about it 
or focused on it long enough to consider whether or not I wanted to read it. And when I saw it in the 100 Notable, I did seek it out. It is not available on Scribd uh, or at my library right now, so it's something I'm going to have to keep an eye out for. Perhaps I will look for a copy to purchase at some point, but I'm trying to be in really... <laughs> I bought a lot of books. You'll find out when I do my book haul for November. I bought a lot of books. So I need to cool it and uh, be really intentional about that. So this is something that's on my radar. I would like to read, but I'm going to keep an eye out for it, basically. The New York Times says, At once personal and political, Akhtar's second novel can read like a collection of pitch-perfect essays that give shape to a prismatic identity. We begin with Walt Whitman, with a soaring overture to America and a dream of national belonging, which the narrator methodically dismantles in the virtuosic chapters that follow. The lure and ruin of capital, the wounds of 9-11, the bitter pill of cultural rejection, Akhtar pulls no punches, critiquing the country's most dominant narratives. He returns frequently to the subject of his father, a Pakistani immigrant and one-time doctor to Donald Trump, seeking in his life the answer to a burning question, what, after all, does it take to be an American? I am very much not surprised that this book made the top five. If I had done a prediction of what books would be in the top five uh, fiction books for the New York Times, I would have put this one on there because I listen to the New York Times book review podcast. They release a new episode every Friday and kind of talk about what's going on in the book review and in the wider book world. And they have talked about this book several times recently. And when they talk about it, they, they are very rapturous about it and its merits. And what's interesting is that they have also debated how much of the book is a novel and how much of it is Ayad Akhtar's life, because it is almost like a fictionalized version of his life. And it can almost, they just, the way they describe it, it can seem like a series of essays about his life that have been fictionalized, which again is interesting. So this is something that I have not read, but it is now on my radar thanks to the New York Times and something that I will be seeking out. And then we have The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Now, this is a book that I had started to listen to on audio, I think back in July, but I could be wrong about that. And I did not get through the audio fast enough, so I lost my hold on it, and I was only halfway through the book. I'm coming close. I believe within the next week or two, I, I will be getting the audiobook back, because even though I have a physical copy of the book, I feel like because I started it on audio, I need to finish it on audio. I don't know. It's just this weird thing that I did. So I, I should be able to finish this book soon. I was enjoying it, but I feel like I was getting to a crucial part of the book. So it's really, it's difficult to talk about since I only got halfway through and because I didn't get to, um, the perspective shifts about halfway through. And I was just getting to that point, which feels critical to the book. So let's see what the New York Times says. Beneath the polished surface and enthralling plotlines of Bennett's second novel, after her much-admired The Mothers, lies a provocative meditation on the possibilities and limits of self-definition. Alternating sections recount the separate fates of Stella and Desiree, twin sisters from a black Louisiana town during Jim Crow, whose residents pride themselves on their light skin. When Stella decides to pass for white, the sisters' lives diverge, only to intersect unexpectedly years later. Bennett has constructed her novel with great care, populating it with characters, including a trans man and an actress, who invite us to consider how identity is both chosen and imposed, and the degree to which passing may describe a phenomenon more common than we think. Now, the point of the book where I had left off 
was when the trans man was introduced. So I did not get very far into that portion of it. And um, like I said, then the perspective seems to shift. So I, 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 I'm really looking forward to getting back to this book because all of those themes that it talks about in this review seem very poignant, very topical, very of the moment. In hindsight, this seems like a natural candidate for a Pulitzer Prize next year. We'll see how that goes, but I haven't really formulated my thoughts around that because they don't usually announce the Pulitzer Prizes until April. I do think Transcendent Kingdom is probably, it still has a good shot along with some other things, but that's a whole separate video that will come next year in 2021. So I am really looking forward to finishing this. I did not read The Mothers. I've heard kind of mixed things about The Mothers, and some of the feedback I've gotten on this was not good, but most of it was really good. And I am looking forward to finishing it. If it does take forever, then if I can really get my act together and get back into a full-on reading mode in 2020, I might pick up the print version of this, but I'm really looking forward to finishing it. At this point, I feel like I need to start over and get through it all over again, which is probably what I'm going to do when the audiobook does become available. That is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Now, those are the fiction books. Let's move to nonfiction. The first one really sounds interesting to me. It's called Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker. The subtitle is Inside the Mind of an American Family. Don and Mimi Galvin had the first of their 12 children in 1945. Intelligence and good looks ran in the family, but so, it turns out, did mental illness. By the mid-1970s, six of the 10 Galvin sons had developed schizophrenia. For a family, this is a quote, for a family, schizophrenia is primarily a felt experience, as if the foundation of the family is permanently tilted, Kolker writes. His is a feat of narrative journalism, but also a study in empathy. He unspools the stories of the Galvin siblings with enormous compassion while tracing the scientific advances in treating the illness. I mean, that sounds fascinating to me. The cover of it also is kind of striking. It says Oprah's Book Club 2020. Somehow I missed that one. <laughs> I don't know how it got by me. But yeah, that sounds like something that is really interesting. I did look online, and I, I believe that one was available on Scribd. Don't quote me on that. I, it, I'll put a note down here saying if it was or wasn't, but that is something I have am going to seek out, and I think it sounds fascinating. The next book on the nonfiction side is A Promised Land by Barack Obama, which, again, spoiler for my November book haul, I got a copy of, obviously, because I'm holding it. And I'm really excited to read this. I loved Michelle Obama's Becoming. I had anticipated that I would because I love Michelle Obama, but I was surprised by just how much I loved Becoming. And from everything I've heard about A Promised Land, it sounds like basically the same thing. I feel like I'm biased to like it in the first place, but even people who are biased to like this seem surprised by how good it is. So the New York Times says, Presidential memoirs are meant to inform, to burnish reputations, and to a certain extent, to shape the course of history. And Obama's is no exception. What sets it apart from his predecessor's books is the remarkable degree of introspection. He invites the reader inside his head as he ponders life or death issues of national security, examining every detail of his decision making. He describes what it's like to endure the bruising legislative process and lays out his thinking on healthcare reform and the economic crisis. An easy, elegant writer, he stand, studs his narrative with affectionate family anecdotes and thumbnail sketches of world leaders and colleagues. A Promised Land is the first of two volumes. It ends in 2011, and it is contemplative and measured as the former president himself. I'm really looking forward to this book. I, I would love to... I, part of me is struggling with this because I wanted to buy a copy of the book because I wanted to support one of my local indies. Uh, I wanted to support publishing. 
And um, I, but I feel like I kind of want to read the, listen to this on audio because he will read it. And what I've heard, I read Michelle Obama's book in print, and what I've heard from people who listened to the audiobook was that that is clearly the way to do it. So I'm worried that I'm missing out by doing it this way. So we'll see what happens and which one I get to. Then, next in the nonfiction side is Shakespeare in a Divided America by James Shapiro. It is interesting that there are two books that have a Shakespeare uh, attachment in, in there. So the subtitle of this one is What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and future. This one also sounds really interesting. In his latest book, the author of Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare, and 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, has outdone himself. He takes two huge cultural hyper-objects, Shakespeare and America, and dissects the effects of their collision. Each chapter centers on a year with a different thematic focus. The first chapter, 1833, Miscegenation, revolves around John Quincy Adams and his obsessive hatred of Desdemona. The last chapter, 2017, Left Right, where Shapiro truly soars, analyzes the notorious Central Park production of Julius Caesar. By this point, it is clear that the real subject of the book is not Shakespeare plays, but us, the U.S. If you're unfamiliar, I remember this story. I did not look it up, but I remember, um, I didn't see it, but I remember that production of Julius Caesar for Shakespeare in the Park. That was obviously the first Shakespeare in the Park after the presidential election of 2016 when Donald Trump became the president. So they staged Julius Caesar and they did a modern version of it. And the actor who portrayed Julius Caesar was dressed up to look like Donald Trump. And several of the other characters were dressed to look like people in Trump's orbit. So, of course, it became this giant controversial issue where uh, conservatives were taking issue with the fact that this production had been staged with Donald Trump where the char character of Julius Caesar is assassinated. So essentially every time this show was performed, Donald Trump was assassinated. And uh, more liberal people really thought that the, the production added a much more urgent contemporary feel to it. And I think the way, the book sounds fascinating to me. I have not checked to see if this one is available on Scribd or online or at my library or anywhere, but this is something that I will definitely be interested in seeking out and exploring at some point. The next book is something that I, I just recently heard of, I think maybe last week. It's called Uncanny Valley, a memoir by Anna Wiener. Wiener's stylish memoir is an uncommonly literary chronicle of tech world disillusionment. Soured on her job as an underpaid assistant at a literary agency in New York, Wiener, then in her mid-twenties, heads west, heeding the siren call of the Bay, of Bay Area startups aglow with optimism, vitality, and cash. A series of unglamorous jobs in various customer support positions follow. But Wiener's unobtrusive perch turns out to be a boon, providing an unparalleled vantage point from which to scrutinize her field. The result is a scrupulously observed and quietly damning expose of the yawning gap between an industry's public idealism and its internal inequities. And I think in particular, the fact a woman working in tech sounds like a, a great vantage point for exactly that, the public idealism and internal inequities. It sounds interesting. I, it's, it's kind of interesting if you do follow the New York Times book review, you can occasionally see some through lines. Uh, they, a couple of years ago, they selected Small Fry by Lisa... Um, Lisa Jobs Brennan is her name, I think. Uh, she's the daughter of Steve Jobs, the one that he famously refused to acknowledge until there was a paternity test that proved that she was her, his daughter. And even then they had a very rocky relationship. So she wrote a memoir about her relationship with him. 
And although it was not really about tech, it is very much in that world because, you know, Steve Jobs. So it does seem like the uh, people at the New York Times Book Review are very interested in this uh, idea of the tech world and the human element within it and perspectives of people in it because that was a memoir as well. So uh, it, it sounds interesting. I don't think I would run out to pick that one up, but it does sound very interesting to me. And I believe this is the final one on the list. Yes, it is. It's War, How Conflict Shaped Us by Margaret McMillan. This is a short book, but a rich one with a profound theme. McMillan argues that war, fighting and killing, is so intimately bound up with what it means to be human that viewing it as an, aber as an aberration misses the point. War has led to many of civilization's great disasters, but also to many of civilization's greatest achievements. It's all around us, influencing everything we see and do. It's in our bones. Macmillan writes with impressive ease. Practically every page of her book is interesting, and despite the grimness of its argument, even entertaining. Now, it sounds interesting, but I'm not going to run out and, and read it. I admit perspectives on war don't particularly interest me. I, political goings-on, you know, I, I think they're interesting because, as, I, as I've said a lot recently, politics is your life. So it matters, but in war in particular is not something, and especially the mindset behind war is not something I interrogate a lot. So I think this is probably the one that I would be the, the second to children's Bible uh, in terms of ones that I would least likely pick up. However, it does sound interesting. And I can see why that is something that is particularly at this moment in time that they would find important and worthy of a spot on a top 10 list. In general, I would love to hear what you think of the 10 books that the New York Times chose as the 10 best of the year. Let me know your thoughts down below. Do you agree, disagree about any of these? What do you think should have made it? Again, my three favorite fiction books that were published this year, so far at least, are um, Hamnet, Shuggy Bane, and Transcendent Kingdom. So if you have other thoughts, that you would, things that you would have liked to see, you know what to do. Leave them in the comment section down below. Loved the book. In fact, this is right now my most gifted book because so many of you write in asking about how do I make a change in my life? How do I make a change in my mindset? How do I make a change in my career? How do I make a change in the way that I think, the way that I act, the way that I deal with people? And invariably, my answer is, you know what? It's a long story. Pick the book up. It will change your life. Anyway. As always, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for that. Hello, this is Brandon from Motivational Speech Podcast. I have a great gift for you. I'm sharing some of the highly valuable life-changing free audiobooks. You can find the audiobooks link in the description. These audiobooks can change your life. So don't waste them.